Well, this morning, uh, I want to I begin uh, this message with a, a little exercise in word association. Okay? And so this exercise is going to be pretty simple. I'm going to give you a list of names, and then I'm going to give you a term, and I want you to think about if they match. Okay? So that's the little exercise we're going to do. So names, term, do they match? All right? Ready? Here is the uh, first name I want to give you, first name on the list. Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein, this name is pretty familiar to most of us. Uh, we know him as the leader, the dictator who ruled over the country of Iraq. And, and we also know that he was a cruel dictator. Um, but maybe we lose sight of how cruel he actually was. During his time in power, not only did he have his political opponents harassed and tortured, but he was also responsible for the death of over 600,000 people. 600,000 people, many of them his own citizens. Actually, in 1988, he used chemical weapons on his own people, killing, killing over 10,000 civilians in that particular attack. So he's the first name I want you to put on our list. But when you start talking about dictators and uh, genocide, um, unfortunately, Saddam Hussein is not the worst that you come across. Uh, there were worse. Um, the Cam- Cambodian dictator Pol Pot was actually much worse. Uh, he was responsible, staggering, he was responsible for the death of 25% of the population of his own country. Take a moment, think about it, 25%. During his brief five-year reign over Cambodia in the late 70s, some estimate that 3 million people died because of his forced labor camps, because of his economic exploitation of the poor, and because of his intentional executions of his own countrymen. Three million people. He was a man who ruled through, through um, vile brutality. So I want you to add his name on our list. So I'm saying Pol Pot. But I want you to add one more. Uh, when you talk about brutal, murderous political leaders, uh, the name that comes to most people's mind is the name Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler. And Hitler, under the cover of World War II, he murdered over 30 million people. I mean, how do we even try to put our minds around a number like that? 30 million people as he attempted to, quote-unquote, cleanse Europe of what he thought of as inferior races. And, And that Holocaust, it was carried out in a cold, systematic, calculating fashion. It was a display of wickedness and evil, which still rightfully horrifies the world almost a century later. And so put his name on our list. Saddam Hussein, Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler. Okay, now I want to give you this term. And I want you to think about this term. And I want you to think about, does this term fit these names on this list? Ready? Here's the term. Totally depraved. Totally depraved. Now, you don't have to answer this question out loud. I just want you to think about this. Does that term, totally depraved, fit those men? If somebody said to you, those men, those mass-murdering political figures, they were totally depraved, we say, oh, yeah, you're right. They sure were. Would you associate that group of men with that term, depraved? That's our little mental exercise. Okay, we're not done yet, though. We're not done with this exercise. I want to give you now a second list of names. Ready? We're going to just give you a second list of names, and we're going to stick with historical figures, okay? So here's the first name that I want you to put on this second list. Ready? Mahatma Gandhi. First name on the second list, Gandhi. Now, Gandhi was a man who was often associated with peace and gentleness, and rightly he was associated with that because of the way that he, he opposed the British occupation of his homeland of India. And Gandhi, he didn't resort to violence. He didn't resort to liberation through bloodshed like you see happen in other places in the world. Instead, he used things like hunger strikes and education to help the world see the plight of his people. And because of his approach, because of the power of his approach, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So put his name on our second list, Gandhi. And then I want you to add another name, another Nobel Peace Prize winner. Let's add the great American Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King. And he won the Peace Prize because he, too, like Gandhi, used nonviolent protests and he used nonviolent protests along with his gifted oratory skills to educate all of us, to educate the American public in the evil, the evil of racism in America. His, his I Have a Dream speech 
is such a powerful example of hope and truth you being used to, to encourage a people, a nation to, to radical and much needed change. So I want you to put his name second on our list. Okay? Gandhi, Dr. King. Add one more. Let's add a name that tops most people's lists when they think of great modern humanitarians. Let's add Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Mother Teresa. Now, like Gandhi and like Dr. King, Mother Teresa was a peaceful person. She was a peaceful woman. But instead of of focusing on changing the political climate of her day, she sought to meet the physical needs of those all around her. In 1950, she, she founded the Missionaries of Charity. And that group was devoted to serving the poor, the needy, the dying of the world. She led that ministry to build orphanages and schools and soup kitchens. They provided child and family counseling and mobile medical clinics. They established homes for those dying of HIV and AIDS and leprosy and tuberculosis. Did all of these things. And because she led that ministry and all of those things, she too won the Nobel Peace Prize. So I want you to add her name to our second list. Let's put it in there with Gandhi and Dr. King. All right? Now are you ready for our second word association exercise? Here's the term I want you to consider with that second group of names. Ready? Totally depraved. Totally depraved. Yeah. Same term as our first list. And again, I don't, I don't want you to answer this out loud. I just want you to, to think, when you think of these people, do you think that term fits them? Does depraved fit these, these three great humanitarian Nobel Peace Prize winners? Does it fit? Well, as you're chewing on that, I'm going to give you a third list of names. Ready? Here's the third list of names. And this third list is not comprised of world leaders or historical figures. These are not names you're going to find in the history books or in a special on the History Channel. But these, these are names I think most of you are going to be familiar with. Ready? Here's the first name on our third list. Dave Tyndall. Kim DeWitts. Alan Miller. Now, all of those folks, they are... They're kind and loving members of this congregation. But I want you to put them on our third list. And let's add a few more names. Let's add some younger names. Riley Wood. Owen Murray. Paul Lemke. Okay, ready again to, to do some word association? Here's the term that I want you to think of with that third list. Dave and Kim and Alan and Riley and Owen and little Paul, little baby Paul. Totally depraved. Totally depraved. Again, answer this question in your mind. Does that term fit? Does it fit with my amazing daughter, Riley? What about funny and kind little Owen? Even baby Paul? Would you associate them with that term depraved? Well, here's the thing. How we answer that question, how we answer that question will reveal how well we understand the human condition. You see, too often when we think about the human condition, we simply evaluate our condition based upon um, what I call a horizontal comparison. We base it on a horizontal comparison. What I mean by that is we look at the people all around us and we compare ourselves to them. So when we contrast our deeds, our, our actions with the likes of somebody like Pol Pot, guess what? We come out pretty good, Right? But then when we turn around and compare ourselves to, say, somebody like Dr. King, we feel like our, quote-unquote, contributions to society are woefully short. But this is often the way that we view ourselves. We view our condition in comparison to one another. And most people usually come out of that comparison feeling pretty good. I mean, even Saddam Hussein could say, hey, I'm no Hitler, right? And that's where most people live, in the comfort of winning the comparison. Yeah, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm pretty good. I'm no thief. I'm no murderer. I pay my taxes. I love my kids. I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm pretty good. That's what most people tell themselves is reality. But the Bible points us to a different reality, a deeper reality, a more accurate comparison, a more honest assessment of our condition. It gives us some word associations with which we might not be too comfortable. But here's the thing. 
If we're going to truly understand the gospel, and if we're going to truly see what's so amazing about grace, the Bible's word association, its assessment of our condition, is something that we need to see and something that we need to understand. And that's what we're going to pursue understanding this morning. What does the Bible say about our condition? However, before we dive into that, let me remind you of why we are doing this. Uh, Several weeks ago, we began a summer sermon series in which we're digging into the truths of the gospel. We're actually looking at the gospel as the good news at the heart of our faith. And what we mean by that, the good news at the heart of our faith, is we're seeking to understand that the gospel isn't simply the door you once walked through in order to become a Christian. It's actually the room in which you now live. Wasn't it just thing you once believed to become a Christian? It's the room in which you now live. It's the soil into which we put our roots down deep. It's the heart of the Christian faith. And as the heart, guess what? It's essential for all of life. As the heart, it's essential for all of life. You see, one of the major struggles, I believe, plaguing the modern church is our devaluing of the centrality of the gospel. Our devaluing of the centrality of the gospel. Oh, we, we profess belief in the gospel, and even from time to time, we might share the gospel. But too often, brothers and sisters, we've stopped savoring the gospel. We've stopped delighting in the gospel. We've stopped being amazed by grace. We've stopped seeing how central it is to everything that we are and everything that we do. And so that's why we're doing this study this summer. We're fixing our gaze on the glory of the gospel so that we can be reminded again about how absolutely essential it is for our lives. That we are called to embrace it. We are called to share it. And we are called to delight in it. To live by the gospel. And so that's why we're doing this study. And again, we we began this pursuit, this new study, by first, several weeks ago, looking at the fundamentals of the gospel. And in that opening message, I gave this basic definition of the gospel. I said, the gospel is the good news, because it is, amen? The gospel is the good news that God acted to save people from judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that God acted to save people from judgment through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in the weeks following that first message, we've been digging into that definition. We've been fleshing it out a little bit. We've seen that the gospel is the good news that our sovereign Holy creator God acted in history to save fallen and sinful people from judgment through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. As we've looked at those truths over these last several weeks, I've watched the effect that it's had on many of us. And and what I've seen is we haven't just been being reminded of these truths. Many of us have been being overwhelmed afresh by these truths. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that. I've seen us appreciate afresh the the glorious fundamental truths of our salvation and seeing how how they shape, how they impact, how they transform our lives. I've watched us delighting in the gospel. And so this morning we're going to continue to pursue that, but we're going to continue to pursue that by going deeper into these truths. Over the next several weeks... We're going to look, if you can kind of picture it this way, we're going to look beneath those fundamentals and we're going to explore what I call the foundations, the foundations of the gospel. We're going to look at the the pillars of truth that hold up the gospel. Or we could put it this way. We're going to move from the, the what of the gospel, what is the gospel, to talking about the why and the how of the gospel. Why was the gospel needed and how does the gospel work? So we're going to talk about topics like the freedom of God and the purpose of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at how all of those things work together in God's plan to save us. And how when God changes your life, guess what? He really, truly changes your life. We're going to talk about all those things. But before we hit on those topics, we're going to talk this morning about a very important foundational topic. We're going to look at the condition of our condition. The condition of our condition. We're going to talk about why God acted in history. Why God acting in history was so necessary. Why that was so necessary. We're going to talk about the condition of the human condition. And here's the thing. It ain't good. It isn't good. So take your Bibles now and turn over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. 
Romans chapter 3. And let's, how, let's look at how the Bible describes our condition. And as you're turning there to Romans 3, I want to share with you a quick story. I'm going to share with you a quick story. This, this story, as you're turning there to Romans 3, this story comes from Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a renowned British journalist who came to Christ late in life, came to Christ in his 60s. But Malcolm, in a, in a letter that he wrote to his father, and this letter is explaining how he under, now understood his own heart, but Muggeridge told this story. He told about a time when he was working in India on assignment, and one evening, he left his residence, I think the hotel where he was staying, and he decided to go down to the river and go for a swim. But as he went down to the river and he entered the river, across the river he saw an Indian woman come from a nearby village, and she'd come to the river to take a bath. And Muggeridge writes this, As she took off her clothes and stood naked, her brown body just caught the sun. I suddenly went mad. There came to me that dryness in the back of my throat, that feeling of wild unreasonableness, which is called passion. I darted with all the force of swimming I had to where she was. You see, Muggeridge, like King David, was filled with lust for this bathing woman. Now, here's the thing. Muggeridge was a married man. He'd taken vows, vows of fidelity and faithfulness. But in that moment, those vows did not matter to him. His heart was driven, driven for that woman. There he is swimming across the river to where she's at. But when he reached her, he found something far different than he had expected. Muggeridge writes to his father that when he saw the woman up close, he nearly fainted. And he nearly fainted not because she was some bathing beauty, but because she was a leper. He writes, You've never seen a leper, I suppose. Until you've seen one, you do not know the worst that human ugliness can be. This creature turned and grinned at me, showing a toothless mask. And the next thing I knew, I was swimming away, trembling. But in his repulse, his, his trembling disgust at this woman, Muggeridge found something else that made him tremble. You see, his first reaction was to despise this woman as dirty and vile. But then he realized that she wasn't the vile and lecherous one. He was. Muggeridge writes... When I think of my lust now, I think of this moment, this woman. Oh, if only I could paint. I'd make a wonderful picture of a passionate boy running after that and call it the lust of the flesh. And that for Muggeridge was a picture of his own heart. That moment was a revelation of his own depravity. And that's what the Apostle Paul is revealing here in Romans chapter 3. He's bringing us up real close. So that we can behold our condition. And what we will find, brothers and sisters, is not some bathing beauty. What we will find is our own leprous, lecherous heart. Look at what he writes here in the text, starting in verse 9 of chapter 3. Starting in verse 9, Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, now watch Paul's word association here. Verse 10, as it is written, none is what? Righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And tell me, what do you think about that little word association? And here's the thing. This is not simply Paul's assessment or the Bible's assessment of people like Hitler or Saddam Hussein. This is what Paul says, brothers and sisters, is true of every single one of us. Every single one of us. Now, here, looking at the text in verse 9, Paul mentions mentions both the Jews and the Greeks, or the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And, and this is here, Paul, in, in verse 9, he's summarizing an argument that he's been building since chapter 1. See, back there in chapter 1, Paul began by explaining that the Gentiles, even though they don't have God's law like the Jews do, they don't have that revelation, they are still justly condemned. Take a, take a moment, turn back, just a, just a couple chapters, turn back to Romans chapter 1. And look what Paul says here. Romans chapter 1, let's start at verse 18. <clears throat> Paul writes, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God, so God's righteous, real, just judgment upon sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he continues, and again, he's, he's speaking about those who, who do not have the law like the Jews do. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Well, they don't have the law. How, do, how has he shown it to them? Well, look at what he says in verse 20. For his, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, those who do not have the the law, Gentiles and, and everybody else today that hasn't ever read a Bible or ever heard the gospel, they are still without excuse. For although they knew God, in other words, they saw the reality of God in the creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Well, what did their foolishness look like? Here it is. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's Paul's description there of, of the reality of the Gentiles, of the godless, of those who do not have God's written revelation of God's law. He says that they are under God's judgment and they are all without an excuse. But here's the thing, they aren't the only ones. Remember back there in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul doesn't just mention the Greeks or the Gentiles, he also mentions the Jews. He says, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So the Jews, the religious, are just as guilty. And Paul made this charge in chapter 2. Turn over there to chapter 2. And let's let's jump in a little later in the chapter. Chapter 2. Look at verse 17. Paul says, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And remember, Jesus said it's not just the act, it's what? The lustful look, it's adultery in the heart. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the godless, because of And with that, Paul does a mic drop on all religious people. He makes it clear that they are no better. The Jews of Paul's day are the religious icons of our own day. They are no better than the godless pagans of Paul's day or the secular atheists of ours. Again, all are under sin. That is the reality. That's the condition of every single person. Now go back to chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3. Look again at verse 9. <clears throat> Look at that phrase, under sin. Again, Paul says, for we've already charged, and what he just talked about, chapter 1, chapter 2, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, with that little phrase, under sin, Paul isn't just saying that every single one of us, Jew and Gentile, religious and non-religious, have sin. Now, he is saying that, but he isn't just saying that. And he isn't just saying that every single one of us is guilty. Again, he is saying that, but he isn't just saying that. He is actually saying something deeper and much more disturbing. He's saying that we are all in bondage to our sin. 
We're all in bondage. Several times in the book of Romans, Paul uses this idea of being under something. Several times he builds uh, phrases with this, this Greek preposition, hupo. He talks about being under the law and under grace. And that, that preposition that he uses, that Greek preposition, hupo, it can mean being under the control of or under obligation to someone or something. And here, this preposition is being used to describe humanity's relationship to sin. He's saying that all humanity is under sin. Under sin, as commentator Leon Morris puts it, Paul is regarding sin as a tyrant ruler. So that sinners are under it. They're under the control of it. They're under obligation to it. They cannot break free. In other words, all humanity is in bondage to sin, no exception, Jew and Gentile. All sin and all are guilty because all are sinners. That's the reality of our nature. That's the reality of the human condition. We are all under sin. And that reality is what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity. Now, it's a term that I mentioned earlier, but when I mentioned it earlier, uh, um, I didn't give you a definition of the term. So let me give you a definition now, okay? When people talk about total depravity, when theologians talk about total depravity, they're not describing someone being as bad as they possibly could. That's not what that term means. Uh, Oftentimes we think about that as bad as they possibly could be. But that's not what they're describing. That's not what total depravity means. Instead, it is a doctrine that describes the effect of the fall upon the human nature or, or what it means to be under sin. And what the Bible shows us is that the fall affected every facet of our nature. Every facet of our nature. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they broke the covenant there with God in the garden, it affected every part of them. Sin corrupted their entire, their total person. It affected them physically and mentally and emotionally and especially spiritually. That's what the total part of total depravity means. It means sin has affected the entire person. But here's the thing. Every part of the person hasn't just been affected by sin. It's been corrupted by sin. And that's what depravity means. It means corruption, moral corruption. And that's what sin did. That's what the fall accomplished. It corrupted every facet of our being. There is not one part of us not affected, not wrecked by sin. And here Paul hammers that point home. Starting in verse 10, Paul makes it clear that this doctrine is not simply um, an opinion or some observation that he is making about the human condition. Total depravity that, that every single part of every single one of us is corrupted by sin is the repeated declaration of the word of God. And I say that because here Paul quotes seven different Old Testament texts. He quotes from Ecclesiastes 7, Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Isaiah 59, and Psalm 36. And he strings all seven of those texts together to make it clear, to make it authoritatively clear, the ugly reality of our condition. And here's the thing. There are no exceptions to what Paul is talking about. Paul wants to make sure we get that. That we understand the truth of that. There's no exceptions. I mean, look at how many times. Look at verses 10 and 12. Look at how many times Paul stresses the universality of this corruption. Just just count along as I read verses 10 to 12. Just look. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Seven times in three verses. Seven times. Paul stresses the all-inclusive nature of this corruption. And you've heard me say this in the past. I'll say it again. God doesn't repeat himself in the Bible because he can't think of anything else to say. He repeats himself because our skulls are thick. We are slow to pick up on these truths. So he repeats himself so we get them loud and clear. And here Paul is saying loudly and clearly, this is true of all of us. But still someone will be tempted to say, Paul, God, Paul. But what about people like Gandhi? What about Mother Teresa? What about the nice folks down at our church? Paul, what about the children? You can't possibly mean the children, Paul. The sweet, innocent little children. Just go hang out in the nursery and see if you still think that. <laughs> but, but, you know, we think, 
You know, but what about, but what about, but what about? You can almost hear Paul's response, can't you? Did I stutter? Was I unclear? I said, none, no one, none, not one, all, not even one. How much more clear could I be? See, Paul's point is depravity has hit all of us. From the nicest person that you meet to the youngest child in the world, there is no one untouched. This side of Genesis 3, there was no one untouched by this reality. And the reality is that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. That's where Paul starts out here. Look at verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. So when it comes to word associations, none of us in our original condition can claim, oh, righteousness, that fits with me. None of us in our original condition. Now, this term righteous that Paul is using here, it's a really a key term in the book of Romans. <laughs> Paul has used this term in connection with God and with man. But here's the thing. Paul makes it very clear when he's talking about righteousness that, that God is the standard when it comes to righteousness, the righteousness of God. God is the standard. God is holy and God is perfect and everything that he does is good. Everything that he does is righteous. Everything that he does is always as it should be. It's right. It's righteous. But then when Paul turns around and uses this term of us, of people, he uses it to speak of our standing before God. Our standing before God and his righteousness, God and his justice. You see, this term righteous that Paul's using here, this Greek term, it was actually a legal term in Paul's day. Often when we hear the word righteous, we think of it as a religious term. But what Paul's done is he's actually stole a legal term from the court system of his culture. And he's using that legal term here to describe our standing before God in, in God's courtroom. And so in God's courtroom, what's the verdict? What's the verdict? Are we in our original condition righteous? Are we able to stand before holy God? And will he look at us and say, oh yeah, you are holy. You are righteous. Everything about you is as it should be. Here Paul says, no. Absolutely not. Not a one of us. In and of ourselves. In and of ourselves. No one is able to stand righteous before holy God. And then Paul goes on to flesh out why. And here in what follows he's really helping us to understand the extent of our condition. He's introduced this condition. Now he's starting to help us understand the extent of our condition. And he first shows us that we are unrighteous sinners because sin has affected our minds. Sin has affected our minds. Look at verse 11. He says, no one understands. No one understands. See, this corruption, it's hit our thinking. We don't think about things the way we should think about things. Now, now what do I mean by that? We don't think about things the way that we should. Well, I'm trying to mean what the scriptures say. Listen, let me just read some passages for you. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, listen. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, the natural person, or the person in their natural, unsaved, unregenerate condition, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They come through the Spirit of God. He's not able to understand them. Or as Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, our thinking, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, what the Bible's teaching is this lack of understanding, this corruption of mind, it's not about mathematics or history or physics, okay? It's not saying that somebody can't know or communicate certain truths. Instead, what it means is that in our, in our original condition, we don't see things as they really are. What I mean by that is we don't see things as rightly related to God. In our depravity, we don't see the beauty and the glory of who God is and how everything about him is glorious. And this whole world is here for what? For his glory. It's all here for him. But to the unregenerate mind, that is foolishness. That's foolishness. That's folly. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We don't get the significance of that. Yes, you can say it. They might be able to repeat it back to you, but they don't see the significance of that. They don't embrace that. Because they don't understand it. They don't understand it. Because sin has corrupted our minds. But the problem here isn't just with our minds. Sin has also affected our desires. Not just our minds, but our desires. Paul says, look at the text. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. So there is 
no hunger, no thirst, no passion, no desire, no drive to truly know and honor and serve and delight in God. It's not there. Now, people will be religious. There's a lot of that. People will be religious. But in the natural condition, because of depravity, because of the corruption of our desires, no one will truly seek to humble themselves and to embrace the true and living God. It's not our natural bent. Instead, our natural bent is to run anywhere and everywhere else. We are looking for meaning in all the wrong places. You know what I mean? We're going all the wrong places. As Paul says, this is Titus 3.3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, then listen to this, slaves, slaves to our various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. We were chasing after all these meaningless things, slaves to our passions, slaves to these passions that had us running away from God and running to other things. And that running away is what Paul mentions next here in the text. You see, here's the thing. Here's how this works. Our, our sinful thinking and our sinful desires then led to sinful actions. You see, our will was in bondage to our fallen minds and desires, so that will and bondage then engaged in Sinful actions. We were a fountain of sin. Paul says, verse 12, look at it. <clears throat> All have turned aside. Here's God going the other direction. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless or unprofitable. That's another way that you could translate that word. And we were unprofitable because of our actions. Paul says of our actions that no one does what? Good. Not even one. No one. No one does good. No one does good. No one does good. Not even one. That's what Paul says. Now, right about here, some of us might want to object to this, though. You might be thinking, wait a second, Paul. What are you talking about? No one? No one does good? I mean, don't we see people, people who who don't want to have anything to do with God, people who don't have anything to do with the gospel, people who reject Jesus Christ, don't we see them do good things all the time? Don't we see them do things like feed the poor, love their kids, faithfully serve in their jobs and even make some great sacrifices, really powerful sacrifices for the goods of others, the good of others. So we see those things. So how can Paul say, no one does good? Not even one. Well, listen to how author Joe Thorne answers that question. Listen, I thought this was really good. He says, Paul does not mean that all people are devoid of all goodness. Sinners can be kind and compassionate and generous. Listen to this. We can be civilly righteous and relatively good before our peers. But here's the thing. Before the face of God, we are known to be what we truly are. Unrighteous. He sees the imperfections in our best deeds and knows the wrong motives driving our actions. And that's not just Joe Thorne's opinion. That's Bible. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy They're tainted. They're tainted with selfish desires and impure motives. None of our good deeds, good deeds, are truly good. And understand that that reveals the extent of our corruption. I mean, if none of our, if even our good deeds aren't good, that says something about us, right? And it says that because sin has darkened our understanding and perverted our desires, even our good deeds are far away from being good. Before holy God. Because they're not done from faith. They aren't done for his glory. They aren't done with pure motives and godly thoughts and godly passions. They aren't truly good. That's the reality of our condition. That's the extent of our corruption. The fall jacked us up pretty good. Even our good deeds are a mess. And if you doubt that, then Paul in this text, he offers you two lines of evidence. Two lines of evidence. That's where he goes next. First, in verses 13 and 14, he says, just look at our speech. Just look at our speech. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of places that Paul could go to show the effects of the fall upon us. But here, he goes to the one area that I think every single one of us struggle with. Our speech. Our speech. I read one author who shared the story of an interesting assignment that he was given in seminary. He explains, listen to this. In the first seminary class I ever attended, we were given a humbling assignment. We were told to go an entire week without sinning with our tongues and then to write a paper about it. Then he gives this confession. I did not last the afternoon. 
And every student's paper spoke of wretched failure. And all of these students were Christians in training for pastoral ministry. This author writes, our depravity pours out of our mouths like sewage from a pipe. And that's the ugly picture that Paul paints here. Here, Paul quotes from Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and Psalm 10. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And Paul applies the words of those psalms. He applies them not just to these really, these people we think are so wicked. He applies them to every single one of us. Lest I remind, you should forget. He said, all, 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 no one. You know, he's already told us. He's speaking about all of us. And so he applies the words of these psalms to every single one of us. And what he's showing us is what James says. Remember this? No human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James 3.8. None of us. And Paul, he shows us the evil of our tongues. Because our tongues, our speech, mark this down, our speech reveals our hearts. Right? Our speech reveals our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, I didn't mean what I said. Oh, Really? Where was it coming from? From the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak. Our speech reveals the reality of our corruption. It is evidence of the depths of our depravity. And if you doubt it, I'll encourage you to take up that seminary assignment. Go this whole week. Try to go this whole week without saying with in your mouth. Write a paper on it. Come share it with, me, with me next Sunday. Let me know what you learn. But I'll, I'll save you the hassle. What you'll find out is that, that even as Christians... The depravity still runs deep. Even as Christians, the depravity still runs deep. Our mouths give testimony to that. And so does our history. Um, the history of violence that we have as humanity. The history of violence in the world all around us. That's the second line of evidence that Paul uses here. He says, just look at the history of violence. Here in verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul quotes from Isaiah 59. And what was true in Isaiah's day and what was true in Paul's day and what is true in our own day is that our feet are swift to shed blood. And in our paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace we have not known. Think about it, brothers and sisters. From the murder of Abel way back there in Genesis 4 all the way through to the the latest school shooting on the evening news, Our history as humanity is a history of what? Violence. Of violence. There is violence in our actions. Whether that is war or murder or abuse or just coming to blows with another man because you didn't like what he said. And that violence is there. Please understand this. That violence is there in our actions because it's there in our hearts. It's there in our hearts. Jesus said this. He said, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it is said you shall not commit murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, listen to this, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the court. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words. Strong words. But Jesus' point there is that our violence, our murderous violence starts where? In our hearts. In our hearts. And it's there because there is no fear of God in these fallen, corrupt hearts of ours. Paul says, look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, we are, we are violent people. We are angry, self-protective, wanting our way at the expense of other people. That's the kind of people that we are because we have no holy fear of our maker. We have no holy fear of our holy creator, sovereign God. We've talked about it already. We want to be the sovereign, right? We saw that in Genesis chapter 3. We want to get up on the throne and go, I know you said this, God, but I want my way. I think I know best. We want to be the sovereign. And so as those who want to be the sovereign, when people cross our sovereign design, what happens? We either wish or we actively pursue violence against them. And again, you don't believe us? Go sit in traffic. I have my sovereign way. I should be at destination, you know, A, at this time. And you're stuffing that. 
and the things we say and the things that are there in our hearts and the things that we could do sometimes if we would do them. It's because there's no fear of God. It reveals our corruption. It reveals the reality of our condition. And brothers and sisters, what Paul is showing here is here, this is the reality of our condition. This is what it means to be under sin, in bondage to sin. This is what it means to be totally depraved. Sin has affected every part of us. We are corrupt from the top of our head to the tip of our toes. We have no fear of God. We have no desire for God. We don't want to understand God or his ways that make no sense to us in our, in our fallen condition. Our speech is corrupt, our history is corrupt, and even our best deeds are filthy rags. We are unrighteous and in bondage to our unrighteousness. That's the assessment that the Bible gives of the human condition. So, the $5 million question is this. What hope do we have? What hope do we have? If this is the reality, if this is the reality of every Man, woman, and child, this side of Genesis 3. If none is righteous, no, not one. If no one understands, and no one seeks for God. If all have turned aside, and no one does good, not even one. What hope do we have? Can our good deeds somehow outweigh our bad? But Paul says what? No one does good, not even one. Well, can, can, we, can we embrace God? Well, we read the Bible, can we embrace God's truth? Follow his ways. But Paul says what? No one understands. Well, what about, can we, can we sometimes just run to God and throw ourselves upon his mercy? But Paul says, no one seeks for God. So, what hope? do we have? That's the question. If that's our condition, what hope do we have? The answer is the only hope that we have is grace. The only hope that we have is the sovereign initiating, and I mean it starts with God, not with us, the sovereign initiating grace of God. Our only hope is that Romans 5, 8, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our only hope is that 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Our only hope is that Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, God. Our only hope is God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul stresses it. For by grace you have been saved. If you are here today and you are a Christian, it is only, mark this down, it is only because of God's merciful, loving, sovereign, initiating grace. You weren't the smartest person on the block. You didn't figure this all out yourself. It is only because of God's sovereign initiating grace. It is because God acted in history to save you. When you had no desire for it, when you had no longing for it, when you had no understanding of what in the world he was even doing, he acted, did everything necessary to save you. That's the why of the gospel. God acted because we couldn't and we, we wouldn't. We were in bondage to our sin. And that truth, brothers and sisters, understanding that reality, it should produce in us a great humility. It should produce in us a great humility. Sometimes Christians get accused of being judgmental. We should be the least judgmental people on the planet. Because we know if it weren't for him, there would be no hope for me. There's no, nothing good that dwells in me. There'd be no hope for me. When we, like Malcolm Muggeridge, come face to face with the reality and the depths of our depravity, the vile leprosy that plagues us, 
it should humble us to our core. Why would God save me? Why would God save us? We in and of ourselves, we're totally depraved. Sin has wrecked us. But the gospel says what we couldn't do, he did. What we failed to see, he showed us. What we could never understood on our own, he revealed. And what we could never, ever hope to be because of sin wrecking us. Righteous. He made us by his grace through our Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory be to God for his amazing grace. Amen. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we come before you humbled by the reality of what you have shown us. These hearts of ours, they're so quick to puff up with pride, to think of ourselves as better than we are. We get comfortable. We look around at others and we think we're doing pretty good. But we thank you for your word turns this mirror on us and shows us reality. And we praise you that you show us this reality not just to humble us and leave us devastated, but you show us this reality to show us how amazing your grace towards us is. How amazing is your love and mercy that though we had wanted nothing to do with you, we couldn't get it we didn't want it we thought we had all the answers our hearts full of corruption our our feet chasing after violence that's who we were in your grace and mercy you sought us you loved us You sent your son to die for us. You you gave the spirit who comes to these hearts of ours, gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and takes this heart of stone and transforms into a heart of flesh, a heart that is now sensitive to you and your ways. Did all that for us. So this morning, Father, we stand in this place, we are in this place and we just say, all glory be to you. All glory be to you. All glory be to you. You have done everything necessary to save us. Who are we? We love you. We praise you. Fill us with with joyful, humble confidence. Not in ourselves, but in you, our great saving God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.